0: As was mentioned earlier, we each, I'm sure, are again so thankful, very grateful that God has allowed us the opportunity and, yea, the privilege of assembling and offering worship unto Him this evening. As Roger mentioned at the outset of those announcements about the gratitude that we each should feel and the characteristic of being able to assemble in this way, it truly is an opportunity that we ought never forsake, but to appreciate that there are many who would wish to be with us, but due to health reasons or otherwise, they are unable to do so. As you know, as you and I have continued our reading through the Word of God, at least in the New Testament, we are now in the midst of the book of Acts. And tonight's lesson is drawn from the middle section of that book. I've entitled it Confirming, Exhorting, Entering. And Lucas read for us just a moment ago from verses 22 and 23 of the 14th chapter of Acts. Some additional thoughts that might have aid us in placing that particular passage would be these on the slide now before us. Interesting, isn't it, when you and I give thought to the development we've already seen in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John begin with the early stages of our Savior's life in the flesh. And as they all close, they all detail for us His crucifixion and that which surrounded His death. But He did with such power and majesty make statement that He would rise again, and that He did three days after His crucifixion. We now have come to the book of Acts, which is the continuation of that marvelous record. We find, of course, the day of Pentecost and the events of several conversions early in that book. Perhaps, as we've read recently with the conversion of Saul in chapter 9, we saw there about a man who was the foremost persecutor of the church, and yet, when he met the Lord on that road to Damascus, he, before that chapter was over, was a preacher of the gospel. What a transformation was wrought! That kind of change, or at least significant change, can happen in any life when that person is converted to the marvelous teachings of the truth. You might notice, as we look at the book of Acts and appreciate this division, you'll notice that among the 28 chapters of Acts, it seems rather easy to see a line of separation that occurs between chapters 12 and 13. Those first 12 chapters had Jerusalem as the center city, if you please, Almost all the effort and all the work centered around efforts that took place in that city. And Peter appeared to be the principal individual carrying out those efforts and labors. It was he who, of course, was the one involved on the day of Pentecost. At least his sermon is the one recorded for us in Acts 2, verses 14 and following. In chapter 10, it was he who, of course, preached to Cornelius, In chapter 11, it was his record of those events that prompted the questions and observations listed for us there. However, as we come to chapter 13, we seemingly see Peter very scarcely mentioned from here onward. In fact, the center individual, other than Jesus, of course, is Paul. We find him making several missionary journeys and we find several chapters surrounding his voyage to Rome we find the center city is that of Antioch. In fact, as you look at those thoughts with me, you'll notice all of it was centered around, though, the carrying forth of the wonderful message of truth. Amazingly, you'll notice one last observation. As we give thought to the events of chapters 13 and 14 this evening, especially chapter 14, I hope that we can reflect briefly now upon that first missionary journey and in so doing to cast the spotlight to set the stage, if you will, on the events that bring us to chapter 14, verses 20, 21, and 22. Here are some initial thoughts I would invite you to consider with me. We noted a moment ago that as chapter 12 seemingly is the last chapter with Peter as a central figure. Things open in chapter 13 with the Holy Spirit having something to say. Please notice as we read verses 1, 2, and 3 of Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, "'Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them.' And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And we have the opening saga of what is often called the first missionary journey or the first evangelistic tour. Amazingly, we now see the Holy Spirit selecting out these individuals, and you'll notice it's Barnabas and Saul, and commissioning them for the work whereunto they had been called. At that point, the details of that work had not been given to them, but we're about to see it over the next several chapters. Immediately, you'll notice the first missionary journey begins. Verse number 4 begins with the words, "...So they..." These two, Barnabas and Saul, didn't question. They didn't offer excuses. They went and did precisely and immediately that which the Holy Spirit had called them to do. And it begins by saying, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. You'll notice immediately that a city is mentioned, and perhaps this map can again be of some assistance to us. It is a map that details for us in order the stopping places, the major cities of interest on the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. If you'll start over to the far right, you'll notice Antioch is there identified, that particular city or location. And you'll also notice that from there, the rest of those cities with a different color are listed for you and me to consider. On that previous slide, I had listed them for us, and might I draw your attention to them again. Following Antioch, there was Salamis. Now Salamis, as you'll notice, is actually on the island of Cyprus. It's on the eastern end of the island of Cyprus. and so Paul and Barnabas, they sailed across that particular section of the Mediterranean Sea. As they came to Salamis, we next learned that they crossed the island and came to the city of Paphos, on the southwestern end of the island of Cyprus. The Holy Spirit didn't provide a number of details, merely identifying those two principal stopping places. From there, they boarded a ship and traveled to Perga, which again is about the middle, exactly the middle of that slide, back on the mainland. You'll notice from Perga, left there and came to another city called Antioch, but please observe with me that there were two cities known as Antioch. One was Antioch in Pisidia, the one that's numbered four, The other was, again, that Antioch known as in the upper region of Galilee. At this point, you'll notice, passing quickly from the city of Antioch, came to Lystra, I'm sorry, to Iconium, and then to Lystra, and then finally on to Derbe. As Paul made these journeys, as he and Barnabas set themselves along those courses, we're going to make some comments now briefly, very briefly, I might add. About some of the things that befell them. But before we do so, please notice the journey doesn't stop at that point. Oddly enough, and this was very unique to the missionary journeys, Paul and Barnabas, after reaching Derby, they turn around and retrace in order the same cities that they had just previously visited. And hence, from Derby back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch, and ultimately all the way back to that initial city of Antioch. As you look at all of those cities and the characteristics of them, let's revisit that previous slide and notice again some comments that I would invite you to notice about them. At virtually every one of the stops, there were significant problems. There were troubles that seemingly enclosed and surrounded Paul on every hand when we come to the city of Paphos. Remember, that was on the island of Cyprus. And you'll notice in verses 6 and following of Acts chapter 13, record is given about a sorcerer who opposed the efforts of Paul and Barnabas there. That opposition ultimately ended by that man becoming blind in a proverbial and also a rather miraculous fashion. Notice something else. When they came to Perga in verse 13... One of, their one of the accompanying gentlemen, whose name was John Mark, he left them. That will ultimately cause problems when we arrive at the end of chapter 15. One issue after another seemingly hindered the efforts of the gospel. One matter after another caused resistance, opposition, and trouble. When we arrive at the city of Antioch in chapter 13, verses 45 through 50... We find that Paul gathered and the Gentiles were more than excited to listen to the message that he preached. But as we might can well guess, the Jews were not so excited. In fact, they opposed Paul, they opposed the message, so much so that ultimately he was forced to leave Antioch under great threat to his own well-being. When we arrive at the city of Iconium in chapter 14, verses 2 and 5, those same Jews that had stirred up problems in Antioch, they traveled all the way to Iconium and stirred up trouble again. Maybe among other things, we can initially gain the impression or the feeling that Paul apparently was a very positive-natured man. With all these problems and these Jews that seemingly were not at all satisfied until they had ceased his proclamation of the gospel. You'll notice finally we arrive at Lystra in chapter 14 verse 19 at least for these. And now those Jews who were so adamant against his preaching, they dragged him out of the city and stoned him. And they thought they had killed him. However, after they departed, Paul stood up, went on into Derby and continued to preach. Isn't that a wonderful story? Isn't that a tremendous statement about his confidence and assurance in the message of truth? Having noted those things, might I ask you to appreciate specifically the text that Lucas read earlier. In verses 20 and 21, and then on into verse 22, Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. I'm sure you noticed with me as we read those that an interesting pronoun is used in verse number 22. You'll notice the pronoun we is employed. And since we remember that Luke was the writer of the book of Acts, we learn on that occasion Luke was an accompanying gentleman. He was a companion of Paul even on this first journey. Might we pause to now reflect on these closing statements. Those words that appear in verse number 22... We have now placed them in the context of the first journey. And again they read, confirming the souls of the disciples. Secondly, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Thirdly, that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. It is at this point we encounter one of the first references in all the New Testament in the very next verse to the matter of elders. It says, and when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Before we conclude our lesson this evening, we'll reflect on all of those statements and all those sections. Might I ask that we do so first by defining the terms with which we'll be concerned. Verse 22 begins confirming the souls. That word to confirm, it means literally to strengthen Ultimately, that is the thrust entirely of the original Greek word, to strengthen. And in fact, there are other translations that render it as to cause to be firm. You'll notice also, the word exhorting them is employed, and that word literally means to, with authority, to urge or to beseech, or in fact, to give a message of strong warning to. Finally, you'll appreciate to enter the kingdom of God. Nothing terribly surprising about that. It literally means to go or to come into and here, to come into the kingdom of God. It is with those thoughts in mind, let's close that particular slide and observe. We're going to devote the remainder of our time tonight reflecting on what was the case for those congregations in Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and Antioch And what then might be of an interesting thought to apply to the church at Pippin today? As we think about confirming and exhorting and entering, might we begin that discussion by coming to the slide now before us? And let's in fact give some thought to that matter of confirming, even as it is mentioned at the very outset of verse 22. It says that as Paul revisited those cities... Places that remember he, hadn't, he had been there relatively recently, but yet upon returning to them, his primary thrust and effort was in part to strengthen them. There is a vital importance set before you and me there, in the New Testament as it relates to strengthening. Let's in fact think about that for the next few moments. Perhaps one of the first observations would be a very natural or straightforward one. It is the fact that Christians need to be strengthened. Christians, you and I need to be strengthened. Certainly, we might well begin to say that a new convert, someone who perhaps only recently has obeyed the gospel, or perhaps someone who has only recently been rededicated to the truth of the Lord, that person may well be in an extreme need for being strengthened. He or she, of course, may well have many competing influences and may have many matters that oppose his or her growth. Strengthening. But may we be quick to say that strengthening is not only for new converts. You and I, who may well have been Christians for a long, long time, still are in a vital need for being strengthened Let's speak about that for a few moments using some passages or some verses to guide us along the way. When Jesus gave that great commission in Matthew 28, the last three verses of that chapter continued to read, "...all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world." There we notice the Lord gave these His special statements. You teach them, which hopefully will lead to their baptism, but then there's a continuing need to teach them. Doesn't that imply that even those that are drawn to the cross and those that become Christians are still as new novices, converts if you please, in such a severe and critical need for continual teaching, strengthening, grounding them in the faith. But now let's cast the spotlight on you and me who may well have been Christians much longer and listen to some verses like these. In Ephesians 3, 16, as Paul addressed the church in Ephesus, remember here, now we're not necessarily new converts, and yet Paul especially laid before them the critical and the vital need for being strengthened. May we pause and ask, are you and I availing ourselves of those tools and those devices whereby we may be strengthened? Certainly that includes all of the services of the church, being present at the assemblies, being there and ready to engage and participate in the way in which we can. But you'll notice that that's only one text. What about that Philippians 4.13 passage? When you think about the usage in the New Testament of that word strengthen, How well did Paul say it when he said, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. As Paul penned that Philippian letter, he himself was in prison. Now, one might not think Paul needed to be strengthened, but yet he quickly affirmed that the Lord afforded him, provided him, and made available to him the reality of the necessary strength day by day. During the song service this morning, Jonathan led us, and as we sang together, we sang about the opportunity in prayer. Be it early in the morning, be it in the opportune times of our services together, but oh, how great can be the strength made available to us in the attribute of prayer. No wonder Jesus Himself said in Luke 18:1, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. In other words, Jesus said one of the prime reasons why men may faint is because they fail to pray. They fail to avail themselves of the greatest power wherewith men on this earth have access to, the power of applying to the God of heaven who Himself is all-powerful and making appeal to His cause of wisdom. You'll also notice with me that the next passage in Colossians 1.11 Paul wrote to the Colossian congregation and also asserted to them the vital necessity of being strengthened in every good work. You and I need to be strengthened in those ways. Maybe one final passage along that line, Revelation 3. One of the things to observe with great intrigue, it seems, is the church at Sardis was a congregation, one of the seven churches of Asia, whom the Lord severely reprimanded. He stated that they had a name, they lived, but they were dead. But did you notice the command then that He gave them was, you need to strengthen that which remains. As long as you and I continue to have within us the characteristic and the desire to arrive at heaven, there's always the opportunity to strengthen something. Some attribute of your life and mine. We are on a tremendous journey that we trust leads to heaven. We should tread with care. And we should strive to strengthen in every way that which is the statement and command and the positive attributes that the Lord has provided, strengthening. Paul came back to these congregations not long after he'd first been there. What do you and I do today from time to time? Our missionary friends that we support, Brother Gilbert, Jack Honeycutt and others, as they labor in these distant places overseas, often as they go to these places, they return yearly to whole gospel meetings. They return on rather regular basis to strengthen the brethren that are there. May I say that though you and I may not live in India or China or Australia, we also need to be constantly strengthened. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Those words of 2 Peter 3.18... As you'll notice with me following that thought, we now come to this observation. One of the things about strengthening the physical body is that it requires activity. You may have an exercise machine, or maybe you've seen them on television advertised. It does little good to buy one if you don't use it. May I say that you and I, even in our spiritual livelihood, if we're going to be strengthened, that requires activity. We mentioned prayer just a moment ago. What else might be included in that list, especially as we come to the next element on our slide? For it says, the Holy Spirit did, that not only did Paul confirm them, that is to say strengthen them. Verse number 22 says, and exhorting them to continue in the faith. Those brethren those first-century brethren that were in Lystra and Derbe and Iconium, and in those cities that we noted there in Asia Minor. You and I can appreciate the fact that there were some significant opposing forces to them. Let's think about those opposing forces as we give some consideration then to the manner in which this exhortation might have taken place. Again, that word exhort is tied to the word continue. Literally, that word continue in the original language means to persevere. Those individuals that lived in Asia Minor, think with me about some of the matters they faced. Remember, they were Gentiles by virtue of character. They were not Jews by inherent nature. As such, remember the forces that labored against them. There was rampant idolatry. Among the Gentile world it was well known about the worship, let's say, of the goddess Diana and others. That worship of Diana took place in the centerpiece known as Ephesus, and Ephesus was not that far, really, across Asia Minor, from this city of Antioch, from Derby, from Lystra, from Iconium. Not only should we notice that, what about those forces from the Roman government? The city of Rome, of course, was the imperial city, and the Caesars were often lifted up as respected to be worshipped. All of those forces impeded so greatly the efforts of the gospel in Asia Minor. No wonder Paul then, shortly thereafter, exhorted them to continue in the faith. They had been planted in the faith not too long earlier, but now they were so quickly tempted to drift away from it to drift back into Caesar worship, to drift back into the other kinds of idolatrous activity, to drift back into the lewd, licentious world of ungodliness. Paul, it says, exhorted them to continue in the faith. Think with me for just a moment about some of these verses. Isn't it true that you and I, whether new convert or convert from a long, long time ago... We still need to always be exhorted to continue in the faith. Satan is so often busy, isn't he? Wielding the opportunities presented to him in the thoughts and minds of people, often directly opposed to the teaching of the truth, and you and I are surrounded by it. In the workplaces, at school, in the community, even sometimes in our own family members. And as such, we need continual exhortation in the faith. Exhortation stated in verses like these, to that city of Corinth, that city known for activities that were very much opposed to the ways of God. Didn't Paul to them write in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, question, are the efforts that you and I put forth... Should we ever feel as if it's wasted? Should we ever feel as if this labor for the Lord is to no avail, to no benefit, completely ineffectual? There are times that you and I may begin to feel so. A gospel meeting is planned and yet there are no responses publicly. But could it be that they're alive, strengthened by what took place? Could it be that there are individuals who are drawn near to the Lord and perhaps nothing public to you and me is easily visible. Sure, that could take place and no doubt does. Maybe you and I should appreciate then with grandeur that the exhortation to continue may not always be as visible publicly. Isn't it true that one of the last passages in 2 Peter 1 verses 6 and 10 highlight these beautiful considerations? In verse number 6, You remember with me that among the Christian graces that were highlighted, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. And you'll notice that among those words is the word patience. That word literally means perseverance. It's the same kind of idea here that Paul exhorted those brethren in Asia Minor to. You stick with your devotion to Christ no matter what occurs around you. Admittedly, there are times that's challenging and there are times that that's demanding, but Paul exhorted them to continue in the faith. You'll notice that four verses later in verse number 10 of the same chapter, "...make your calling and election sure." There is a certainty and a confidence and assurance attached to faithfulness in the Lord that allows us to move along in life with an air of positive nature and an air of understanding that there's a far greater matter about us than what this world has to offer. Maybe one final passage in Second Peter 3.14. One last time near the close of that book, an exhortation to steadfastness. I'd invite you to reflect with me as we come near the close of that slide that naturally the next thought must be this. If they have been exhorted to be confirmed, that is to say to be strengthened, and now they're exhorted to continue, doesn't that seemingly suggest that there are many forces at work in the lives of those individuals and certainly in the lives of you and me that tend to impede this characteristic of steadfastness? What are some of these forces? And what does the Scriptures have to say encouraging us along the way? That seems to be the natural next idea mentioned in this verse. As I read this verse, it almost leaped off the page about the character of the order. Did you notice it with me? There's strengthening. And then there's exhortation to be consistent in the faith. But then he says, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Isn't that wording a bit intriguing? We must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God? It's as if Paul said, you need to be aware of the fact, brethren, in Iconium, in Lystra, in and in Antioch. You're going to face problems, and there's going to be a lot of them. And they're going to be challenging, and they're going to be demanding, and they're going to tax you sometimes very greatly but it's only through the proper endurance of them that we'll enter into the kingdom. You'll notice that Paul wasn't overly optimistic in one sense, but yet he was in another. He didn't try to cover the fact that their lives were going to be hard, that their devotion to Christ was going to be tested and challenged and tried to the very core in some instances, but only with fidelity to the Master. Only with confirmation and strength and exhortation will you ultimately with victory be able to enter into the kingdom of God. Let's consider those of the following life. I've tried to make statements that I don't think will be shocking or surprising in any regard to any of us. In many ways, life is not easy. We understand well the great blessing and often we do enjoy healthfulness and things are well at work and other avenues and statues of life, but let's face it, there are other occasions and they seemingly pop up out of nowhere at times. And it just isn't easy. How many sleepless nights have you unfortunately suffered? How many times of great decision rested before you when it wasn't clear which is the proper path to take? How many times did you hear news that shook you to the foundation of your being on that occasion? How many times did someone you love make some decision and you shed tears over it? It caused you that much disappointment and heartache. How many times have there been occasions that beset you in such a way that you simply weren't yourself for some protracted period of time? Life isn't easy. Life isn't a bed of roses. From the time of the fall in Genesis 3 onward, it has been that way. Now, when Adam and Eve were here before sin entered the world, it was a paradise on earth. There wasn't any death. There wasn't any sorrow. But from that time forward, there's been disappointment and heartache and death. There's been tears of sadness shed. There have been matters that have troubled you and I in untold ways in every generation since. You might appreciate some of these statements as you and I think about where those problems can arise. It can relate to you and me personally, our own health. It can be in our family. It could be on the job, in the community. It could even be in the church. Many have been the times my family and I have had individuals to speak with us, to call us, talk with us, and talk about how their heart ached because of something happening in the church of which they were a member. Sometimes it's hard to find the words to provide comfort, to provide solace, to provide that which is the proper thing. May we suffice it to say, Paul came to these brethren in the midst of what could have been weakening circumstances, circumstances in which they were so sorely tried, and he offered that which was strength. Through the gospel, he offered exhortation. Look at some of those features at the bottom. And you'll quickly recollect with me a number of other occasions in the wonderful Word of God in which we find things like this. We might well begin, Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and following, he highlights what anguish it had brought his way, his earnest prayers for his removal, but it was not to be. It was something apparently with which he lived for the rest of his days. What about that scene set before us in Second Corinthians eleven 23? You'll notice there Paul gave a listing of several things he suffered, including shipwrecks, beatings, perils, both from countrymen and otherwise, circumstances surrounding the constant weight that rested on his mind. Paul was concerned about the churches he had established. Would they endure? Would they remain faithful? Would they in essence be that which they ought to be? You remember how Paul was beside himself in spirit after he wrote the First Corinthian letter? He wondered how those brethren would receive that message. As harsh as it was, Paul feared it might drive them away from the faith. When Titus was late in coming, Paul was worried, how did they receive the message? And oh, how he says, my heart was comforted when Titus brought me the way that you received it. Paul loved the church. It broke his heart when the thought of something to damage it in some way came across his mind. You'll also notice there were many adversaries. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, as Paul closed the First Corinthian letter, he said there are many open doors and there are many adversaries. Today, doesn't it in some sense remain so? Open doors seemingly go hand in hand with adversaries, hand in hand with problems, difficulties, and persecutions. As you come near the close of that slide with me, you can quickly list others. The Apostle James was put to death in Acts 12 because of his fidelity to the Master. That scene of events mentioned in Revelation 3.20. Didn't Jesus say, if you'll come over to live with me, that is be faithful, you can enjoy the blessedness of all the nature of what is eternity in heaven. That's what we look forward to. So far as we've looked at this third element, much tribulation. Isn't that a bit surprising to hear the Spirit of God be so direct? Maybe you and I today, as we are wise to help new converts realize as you obey the gospel, there are going to be forces that oppose you, but Jesus will always be there to help you. There will be a congregation of faithful brethren there to assist you, but don't ever forget that there will be problems. Don't be disillusioned. Don't give up when they do occur realize that those problems can be key to that which we're about to see next. What blessed beatitude is there in Revelation 14, 13? It's one that you and I have so often recognized and known. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Isn't it true that in this life there is so much work? It's unending, isn't it? In the spiritual kingdom of God, and even outside, it seems to be an unending matter. Don't you look forward to a day when you can, in in the proverbial sense, lay the shovel down? When you can enjoy a time of respite and rest in that glorious abode that is beyond this one? How sad it must be to to not be able to look forward to that time of rest. It is with those in mind we do quickly come to the last observation of the lesson this evening. It is in a very, very brief sense what we did notice quickly in verse 23. These churches that Paul had come through and started in Iconium and Derby and Lystra and these places we've just noted. You'll notice that as Paul quickly then went back through those same cities, how much time elapsed. The Holy Spirit doesn't tell us the exact number of days, but it seems clear it was no more than two years In other words, he came through these cities again in order, taken from Antioch to Iconium to Derbe and Lystra. And then less than two years later, he revisited the same congregations. And when he did, what did he do? Verse 23, when they had ordained them elders in every church. These congregations didn't exist for decades without elders. For a period of time they did, but it was only a short time. And then there were men appointed to occupy that office of an elder. And you'll notice that there are several quick observations. First, the word elder is plural. There wasn't just one elder in each one of these congregations. There was a multitude of them, at least two. And he also says, in every church. There wasn't a pair of elders over a number of churches either. There were elders in every church. And that still is the New Testament pattern. There is no authority for a bishop over a number of churches or some kind of delegate over a number of congregations. It isn't so. That's as unscriptural as anything else that might be mentioned from men. Elders in every church. Isn't it amazing to give thought then to the charge given to elders in the remainder of the New Testament? They are to have their eye out for the souls of individuals so that they can help keep things on track in truth. I entitle this section, Pressing Onward. Later, to the Philippian church in Philippians 1:1, the elders and the deacons are mentioned. That church was blessed with these leadership roles as well. And so it remains today, Pressing Onward. I hope that you and I have been reminded this evening that with much tribulation, we'll enter the kingdom. This life is going to bring its problems and difficulties. That's a certainty. But may you and I have a faith that is of sufficient fortitude to make our emergence through those times of trial a matter of victory and a matter in which we can learn and be better equipped to help others and better equipped ourselves to tackle the next test. Is it any wonder in James 1 verse 12, opening chapter of that book of James, "'Blessed is the man that endureth temptation.'" For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. As you and I hear the words of that verse, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. And that word endure in that passage indicates to emerge with victory, not to succumb to the temptation, but to in fact avoid it and to come through it with positive success. May you and I tonight learn from those congregations and Paul's approach to them. That when we encounter these difficulties, may we seek the means of being confirmed, the means to be exhorted, and the means to press onward even through much tribulation. In summary to this lesson tonight, the thoughts that I express here are just an attempted, very brief summary. We've looked at some of the features of the first missionary journey. We have found in it that Paul was threatened on many occasions, but even his words to encourage the brethren surrounded the fidelity, the faithfulness. May you and I ever be the same, both individually and demand it so in the congregation. This very night, if you aren't listed among that faithful, if you yourself, though one time you were, you've drifted away and much tribulation has brought enough heartache that you no longer are the faithful person you once were, Jesus still wants you at His side. He still wants you back. He wants you right where you once were, faithful. Tonight, we could pray with you and pray for you, and we'd be delighted to do it. If there would be one or more in this audience in that circumstance, why not ask for the prayers of brethren? If you've never become a Christian, though, you don't at this point have that avenue of prayer. For we learn in John 9, 31, that the Lord doesn't hear the prayers of sinners. You need to have your sins forgiven, and the only way to do that is to allow His blood to cleanse you in baptism. You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you with that tonight, again, we'd be privileged. If we could be of help to you in any way, why not let us know and come while together we stand and while we sing.